Hello, everyone. Welcome to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence for designers. Welcome to another business design jam where we take um, latest business news, um, some interesting business examples, and we just talk about the relevancy of them for the work of designers and the design community. And as you can see today, I'm joined with uh, I'm joined by Franz, program director at the DMBA. Welcome, Franz. Hi, everyone. So today we'll talk about a lot of um, big news, you know, uh, especially the big crash that we had uh, lately on the in the tech sector, and then we will dive deeper into one of the stories, which is going to be Netflix. But before we go into the topic, um, I just like to invite those of you who want to learn more about business to take our seven-day mini MBA, which is an email course where over seven days you get seven emails and you learn seven business topics. Um, so to subscribe to mini MBA, head over to d.mba slash mini minus MBA. Okay, now let's dive into the episode. So Franz, as if we were not living in chaos, economically speaking, you know, inflation, quantitative easing, free money, all of that stuff. Now we also got the first, feels like introduction to the market crash, uh, mainly in the tech sector. Um, so for those who maybe are not following or maybe you're not invested because you are not on the stock market investing, just a quick um, rundown of what happened. Uh, and I'll just go through some of the most well-known tech stocks and what happened with their prices in the last few weeks. For example, Facebook went from $350 per share to roughly $180, which is almost 50% crash. Then we have Netflix, which went from $600 to $180, which is almost 70% lower. Then we have Amazon, which went from 3,300 to 2,000, roughly 40% lower. Then we have Apple, which actually did the best. You know, they only dropped 20% from 180 to 140. And Alphabet, which is the parent company, which we know as Google, uh, went from 3,000 US dollars per share to 2,100, which is roughly 30% crash. So That's some huge. did better, some did worse, but all of these numbers are huge, as you said, right? Yeah. Usually when we look at the daily fluctuations, they're like one, two, three percent up or down. And this is like 30, no, 20% is the lowest number we have now. Yeah. Which is usually when we talk about the crashes. Absolutely. We did see one. Uh, that was quickly recovered when we went into Corona pandemic. Mm. Now, two years later, we're seeing another one. Yeah. That's interesting thing you, you bring up because in the Corona times or when the first Corona hit, governments did what they know how to do best, which is print a lot of money. And now so much money has been printed that this is not an option anymore. <laughs> Actually, what caused this uh, crash, among other things, is the fact that the central banks, namely the most important central bank in the world, which is FED, so the central bank of the of the US, um, has communicated that they will be raising uh, the interest rates. 
They will raise them, I believe, like six or even seven times over the next few quarters. And that, you know, spooked investors and then some things happen and more and more people sell and then we have a crash. So that's how it usually works. There is some kind of an... Uh, uh, cause that usually leads to this and in this case it seems to be mostly connected to just uh, the inter interest rates and the actions of the fed among with other things such as war between china and us when it comes to eco economic war to be clear not the real one um but yeah i mean let's talk about why does this even matter i know when I was studying business or even before I went to the business school. I didn't really get it. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like prices fell down. Like who does it really affect? You know, why does it really matter for companies? Mm. So I think the first thing that you see is when the price is lower, it affects the stockholders. You know, if you own a stock, you like maybe yesterday you had, let's just say $1,000 in stocks and today you have 300 you know, and maybe to bring this to a more concrete example is, I don't know, let's say you were you were saving for your pension and you had 100,000 saved and now all of a sudden you only have 50,000. That completely changes um, how you will spend your retirement. So it definitely affects like the individuals. But how does it affect companies? Um, well, if a company is profitable, it does not really directly affect its results, um, but it affects the perception around it. And one of the interesting things is that it affects, um, you know, how you can invest further. So let's say a company needs to maybe uh, expand or wants to expand. Um, it needs to finance this expansion somehow. So one thing they can always do is sell more shares if they still have them, which they usually do. And now if the stock price fell, it means you need to sell more shares. So that affects your financing in a big way. It's uh, much so it changes a lot of actually get finance because whatever you'll be selling will be less worth. So it's going to be harder for you to secure new capital for investments. Exactly. So that's really on a top level, but it's it's a it's a big part for new projects, for new products, for new innovations, which a lot of designers are working on. So if you're working on a new product line, this may really change how, even if company decides to further invest in this project and so on. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is obviously it affects kind of the top level management, <laughs> uh, which then trickles down to everyone in the company because top level management is usually paid uh, or compensated for the stock price. You know, if the stock price is high, they get higher bonuses. So they will do everything they can to increase the stock price, which Sometimes me just restructuring the company and restructuring the company is a fancy word for laying off people that, or like laying off people and cutting out expenses that are not um, urgent. So, you know, trying to show to the market that you're doing well, that you're profitable, and which would then again, raise the price. Mm, so that's another thing. And the third thing that I, f that I find really interesting, which goes back to the uh, financing is that, if the price of your stocks is lower, you have a higher chance of a hostile takeover. So for example, if somebody your company was worth somebody buying you, exactly, yeah. right? So if your company is already public and we're talking about stock prices, so all of these companies are public, then you know, if if the price of your company has fallen 
uh, there's a higher chance that somebody out there has enough money to actually go out and buy a controlling stake. And then they could just change the management and change the whole direction of the company. And that's what companies usually try to uh, avoid. Curious how this plays into the Elon Musk buying Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I think there have been some reports that now he is already trying to renegotiate the price. Mm. Partially because of a lot of bots being on the platform, which changes, you know, how many eyeballs you can sell you can sell to. And partially also because of the this economic downturn or the beginning mm. of the economic downturn. I would rather say that this uh, bot thing is a reason that you can put to the forefront while you just know that the offer that you made is just too high for current stock prices. Mm. Even though Twitter had a really stable price for a really long time, so there was a argument that it was underpriced in a way, but at the same time, everything was so... Yeah, all the other prices were so high that you could also say that even this was maybe too too high. So, yeah, agree. Curious to see what will turn out. Yeah. Um, so now we, we, we quickly touched upon how this affects big companies, big corporations. I think it's also interesting to see how it affects startups, which is actually even more fundamental. Because if we look at a startup, startup is a company that is almost by definition, not profitable. Most of them are not. Mm. Still looking for a business model that works. That's a very common definition. You're looking for a business model. Mm. And secondly, you're trying to get to this scale where certain, um, so economies of scale where certain costs that you have right now can be dispersed enough for you to become profitable. Mm. So what happens is startups focus on growth and not on profitability. So just to, to play this scenario out, let's say Franz got 5 million investment to start his software and Franz um, hired, let's say, 30, 40, 50 employees. And um, it's not profitable yet, you know, like maybe each year you're still losing, like, I don't know, let's say 2, 3 million, whatever, something like this. And now this economic or the, the small tech crisis has hit Franz's startup. So what happens? First of all, France still needs to raise money to grow, right? But because of this uh, crisis, less and less people are uh, giving money to the VC funds who then in turn can also invest in startups. So you have this weird scenario where France is expecting to get more money in a year, you know, because startups raise round A, B, C, D, depending on their uh, type of business. And um, now France is concerned. Are you concerned, France, that you will not get the next round, right? And that's an interesting dynamic because um, you might think that stock market is one thing because it's public companies, it's huge companies, and then there are startups and that's a completely different thing. But actually, if this uh, whole system um, takes a downturn, it basically trickles down, right? It's about availability of money in the market. So one thing, stock market crashes, meaning that usually investors in startups also have stocks. So they mm. see their value decline. Then you have interest rates going up, meaning that it's also 
less money in the market, more, let's say, not profitable, but it starts to get viable again to also put your money elsewhere because there is all of a sudden uh, interest rate again. And on the other hand, it's more expensive to get money because again, all of a sudden there is interest rates again, while for years money was basically for free. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting side story. Uh, and let me again paint this picture. So imagine there is a business spreadsheet, let's call him Spreadsheet Jeff, you know, and Jeff loves working with his spreadsheet and he's calculating which project makes sense uh, to invest in. And then Jeff calculates that, oh, this project is profitable. Um, and in the end, we will have 5% return on investment. But now this is based on 0% interest rate. So now just for simplification, let's imagine that interest rates rise by 5%, which means that this project is no longer profitable. It doesn't make sense to invest in it. And that's how interest rates affect all of these investment decisions. So the higher the interest rate, the less projects are are invested and carried out by companies because less of them actually make financial sense. So mm -hmm. that's the relationship there. And they don't make financial sense because on the one hand, if you need capital, you have bigger cost. Interest are your additional cost for raising capital. But yeah. on the other hand, it's also that you have another, let's say, safe alternative. And you also weigh your um, profitability or your result of a company against the safe um, alternative. And if your safe alternative is 5% interest rate, you wouldn't invest in a business because that's definitely not safe. Mm. Yeah. And that also explains why we've seen so many startups raise so much money, why we've seen so many new real estate projects, like projects in general in the last five, six years, because money was just free, you know, and that made a lot of projects profitable mm. or viable, at least on the paper. Mm, and that may change with higher interest rates, probably will change. Mm. Mm. But yeah, the, the the last thing I wanted to share about is, let's still call it a potential market crash because at this stage it could still like turn for the better, but at least like an early sign of what could come is the fact that what a lot of investors suggest and recommend to their founders of the startups is that they cut the costs mer mercilessly when it comes to these kind of situations. Um, this is something that Paul Graham, who is a founder of a famous Y Combinator, so one of the most famous like startup incubators, he calls this, are you de by default alive or by default debt? So going back to your startup front, so if you're losing 2 million per year and if you assume the same growth and same costs, are you by default debt or alive? You know, if we continue with the same growth and mm -hmm. same costs, do you reach profitability or you just go bankrupt, right? And the way we laid out the scenario is that you're by default debt. You know, you have, if we took your current growth and your current cost, you're just not going to get out of it. So the, the recommendation for a lot of startups at this stage is to just try to survive this downturn. And they do this by trying to become by default alive. So this means that... Um, Assuming the growth rate stays the same, so you're not growing any faster. Mm. And um, so expenses remain constant. 
can you reach profitability before you run out of outside funding? Yeah. So for those of you working in startups, you may see these discussions being floated by the the if you're in top management, you should do it yourself. But if not, somebody will start talking about different scenarios. What if our business goes down by 50%? What if we stop growing as fast? What if we keep the growth constant? And then usually people just need to calculate these different variations and then just start optimizing, you know, start mm-hmm. cutting expenses somewhere. And we've seen this. Um, actually, just yesterday, um, a friend of mine sent me a website called layoffs.fyi <laughs> have you heard of this no <laughs> it, it's uh i'm just looking at it it's a website that was uh created after covid19 uh broke out and it's tracking all the tech startups um all the tech startup layoffs since then and i'm just looking at the last few months or even weeks so the big one, for example, was Klarna. So Klarna is a fintech company from, I believe, Stockholm. And they have a lot of like online payment uh, products and so on. And they are already making $1 billion in revenue. So they're not a typical startup anymore. And they just, a few days ago, they um, laid off 700 employees, 10% of them. Then maybe a story that more designers can identify with is Mural. So the the online workshop collaboration whiteboard. tool, yeah, whiteboard tool, thanks, laid off 90 employees, which is roughly 10%. So mostly not in product, I believe it was mostly in marketing and something else. But still, like these are the early signs of what's to come. Um, so interesting times. Mm. One thing that I would like to come back is um, and sorry if I'm hitchhiking the conversation towards economics, but we always talked about high, how, how higher interest rates are basically the cause of this current, let's say, extraction of money. Um, so less money available um, and also companies or stock market uh, on the downturn. So the question is, why do we even have now rising interest rates if everything would be better if we have lower interest rates um, because I think this might be something that we're everybody's asking themselves I was asking yeah. this also before I um, yeah tried to learn a little bit about this and that's basically just because interest rate is a, is a measure against inflation and yeah. now we are basically stuck in a situation where we would love to have low interest rates because this helps growth this makes money available this lets companies flourish but at the same time, if there is a lot of money, it drives prices, which means that we have inflation. And at the moment, we have huge inflation all over the world or almost all over the world, meaning that if we just keep interest rates low, this inflation will also stay high and this will harm the consumers on the other side. So now there needs to be kind of a balance in terms of, okay, we kind of need to make our money policy, fiscal policy, a little bit more restrictive, not having that much money in the market and hoping that inflation goes down. But at the same time, we know that we will harm our investment market, which again harms users because everybody or almost everybody is invested by now, right? So if you haven't 
started your stock uh, your stock um, account after the 2019 pandemic because if you're like okay now there is a time that I can benefit from the market then you're basically I guess one of the few people I think a lot of people who weren't invested for a long time are now invested in the stock market meaning yeah. that we are basically hit from two sides right we're yes. hit from inflation on the one side and that's obviously not great then we tried to also um, earn money by stock market and now we have a downturn so we're hit from the other side with yeah. uh, market crash or almost market crash exactly exactly actually I this is the first time that I really understand inflation in a way it's like it's the first time in my adulthood that I can see actually high inflation you know and up until now it was just a theoretical concept for me you hear about the stories you read about it but you don't really understand how it happens and how how it feels. And what what hit me as a really interesting observation was the fact that all of us were at home, you know, locked in during the lockdown and people were saving money. And then all of that purchasing power came out to the market. So now you imagine being, and let's say everybody was trying to build houses or buy apartments, which was the case. Everybody figured out, I need a bigger space. All of that money then goes into one sector, in this example, like real estate. And you imagine you being the real estate developer. And now all of these people with all of that money trying to buy stuff off of you. What do you do? You raise prices. So this is how, like, this is really like simple example of inflation in action. Like it can come from demand. So too much money on the market, which is what happened. At the same time, we also had some uh, back-end um, implications, which were broken supply chains between the world and, I mean, let's say specifically China and the rest of the world and so on. And that also didn't just, so we were not just hit on the demand, on the demand side and more people wanted certain um, goods. We were, we were also hit on the supply chain that supply chains were hit and the, the, just the supply was not there. So again, we were hit from both sides. So yeah, now we're trying to fight this inflation, but we're creating another problem. But the question is still like, what's uh, a lesser evil in this case? And I would probably agree with central banks that we need to get this inflation under control. Otherwise, it can also spiral out. Um, what this discussion also reminds me uh, is of Warren Buffett's uh, quote or like message. So he talks a lot about inflation not lately but even like his old youtube videos and stuff people are asking him hey what is the best way to defend against inflation and you know people expect usually to say i don't know buy gold buy i don't know stocks whatever and his point is actually the best way to defend against inflation is to have a good skill you know that you have a skill so you as an employee as a worker in this economy that you have a skill that's well sought after because then you can raise your price which is your salary then um, and that helps you defend against inflation and second best uh, tip that he had is that own a business own a business that can raise prices because then again you can defend against inflation you know so you need or be part need of to be selling sorry or be part of it in this case or be part of it not on the receiving yeah. end <laughs> and here we get into this discussion of what is a infl inflation prone versus 
um, inflation, well-defended inflation business. You know, like have you have certain goods that people need or even want more in inflationary times. Let's say you work for a discounter food store. You know, usually they benefit in these times. But if you're selling something that's a little bit more luxury, that maybe and and not so essential, then you know it could hit your revenue, and then with mm-hmm. that also, uh, also your salary and so on. But we went very far now into this topic. And also, I think it's a nice transition to a good that um, is not that essential and is currently suffering also under this market crash. Perfect. Uh, it's Netflix that I want to talk about. So I think you mentioned it already. Mm, so yeah. um, I would like to go a little bit deeper into this example because it's very interesting on different levels. It's interesting on the level of um, the stock price. It's interesting on the level of what can they do now. And yeah, that's what I really want to look into because I think you mentioned $600 that it was in last year that like I think they had their high in November 21 uh, with $700 per share. And now they are, as of today, at $180 per share. Mm-hmm. So this is huge. There was yeah. actually two drops. The first drop was in January, 50%. And then there was another almost 50% again in April. And I actually want to talk about the second drop because there was also a reason to that. Um, the reason was that they have lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter. And this is super interesting because actually what they have is 220 plus million subscribers. So if you put this into perspective... That's not even 1%, right? That's less than... 0.09% of subscribers that they lost in the first um, quarter of 2022. And this led to an almost 50% drop in the company's value. Mm. So yes, they had a plan in 2020, uh, in uh, 2022 to add 2.5 million to their 220 million and they lost 200,000. But at the same time, 200,000 is like not, as you said, not even 0.1% of their whole subscriber base. Sounds a little bit like overreaction to me, but why did it happen? I mean, it's, it is even more interesting when you look into the numbers more uh, more um, in detail because their revenue projection was almost hit. So they their revenue in, in the first quarter was below like 0.1% below projection. This means that the revenue didn't drop. It just didn't fully hit the projection. And I think also just to explain why projections are so important is because investors use them to see if your price on the stock market is, you know, if it's worth it or not. So the projections are the thing that investors use to determine your stock price. And if you tell me now, Franz, that the projection was met, that's even more of a like mm, head scratcher. I have another one. So (laughs) I told you revenue was almost hit. But earnings per share, which is the profitability, so profit divided by the numbers of shares, was even 20% beyond uh, uh, expectation. So that's even more crazy, right? Your Mm -hmm. profitability numbers are even higher than you expected. And the only thing you do is you lose um, 
0.09% of your subscribers and your share value plunges. And that is really interesting to see that a company's value is not really determined by the current performance of your company, but it's much more dependent on the future expectations. And expectation of Netflix was ever-growing subscribers. And this was now the very first time since they ever started their subscription model in 2007 that they have lost subscribers. They have always grown in more than a decade. I mean, this is in itself already crazy, but after more than a decade for the first time, they have lost subscribers. And this is what mm. crashed the expectations. And this is what also led to this um, plunge, basically, in the share price. And we cannot attribute this plunge just to this recent crash, right? Mm, not sure what you mean with this question. Well, one could say, oh, if they're doing so well, maybe the crash, so the price that went down, is just to the fact that also other, all the other technological uh, stocks went down. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, definitely there is, let's say Netflix, next, Netflix would have still grown. I think there would have also been a plunge. But what's interesting is that this drop, the second one in April, was exactly... Um, bound to their um, to publishing the numbers right this was a direct mm -hmm. reaction to hey by the way we lost 200,000 subscribers and then next day it just went down so i think it would have still gone down with the general market downturn but um it's super interesting that in this case there is another reason and um that was just yeah expectations being not met and their expectation of netflix is you're growing in subscri subscribers. And the reasons are definitely, like, there are many reasons, right? On the one hand, you have competitors for, <laughs> I mean, huge competitor uh, basis. For a long time, Netflix was the only solution in the market. And now you have, I don't know, it's I would even call it market saturation. There are so many streaming platforms um, and now people can choose and people do choose and it's maybe not netflix anymore that they choose so competition and market saturation is definitely a reason for uh, the um, subscribers going down second thing definitely is also uh, post lockdown so all of a sudden you have opportunities time and money being spent on other things rather than um, being at home right so this was how you best had value, right? You had to be at home. So you had to do something at home. Uh, you don't always want to work or learn. So you always also need some time that is, let's say, not uh, productively spent. You want a time to relax. And now you have other options to do that. And before it was basically Netflix. And again, we're back at our inflation topic, right? Inflation, cost of living, people putting their spending under scrutiny, Um Maybe you have two or three um, subscriptions to different platforms. What are you going to do? You're going to think about what can I, what can I cut down? And Netflix, yeah. I think we all agree, is not an essential uh, good, right? Yeah. And then you realize that they didn't create a sequel to Stranger Things or any of your favorite shows for like a couple of years now. And you just get mad, you know, like, I'm not going to pay for this anymore. <laughs> Like every year I'm setting Stranger Things to come back and it's not. Like it just makes me more likely to 
Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might also be a reason. <laughs> so the thing is, what can Netflix now do, right? We can, we said, okay, this is just a crash. Uh, we need to try to survive. But I think there is more to that. So um, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Netflix designers, product managers, decision makers, and just think about, okay, what can they need to do? And in the end, what they need to do is maybe not um, putting their business into function into a functional business again because we know that this actually works and it is a functional business it's much more about gaining the trust from the investors again and gaining the trust of the investors is profitability in the end right so you need to be you need to show that you're profitable and also your profitability outlook uh, looks good so this is what you basically need to do uh, in this situation and there is a tool for that which is called Profitry. So if you want to get <laughs> to profitability, you look at your profit tree and you try to find out what are your levers. And on the very top level, it is uh, the revenue on the one hand and it's the cost on the other hand. So now what you want to do is find projects. What you want to do as a, also as a designer is uh, you want to find projects that either raise your revenue or cut your cost to an extent that you can... Um, also create a good story out of it for investors mm. I think we also link in the show notes to the profit trace so you can visually see it but it's a, it's a really simple tool we designers but also anyone in the company can use to really understand also the projects we're working on what their main goals are and usually they also include some kind of a hints towards what the solution for the project could be and so on. So yeah, I think it's a it's a really simple but also very widely applicable tool in these situations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could go a little bit more into detail because obviously revenue cost doesn't give you much. But when you go deeper, for example, into revenue, uh, there is more detailed levers, right? So if you look on revenue again, next level is you can raise your number of paying customers or you can raise the revenue per customer. So this is the next lever that you can go on the lookout for. Is there a way that I can get new users or is there a way that I can increase the value per user? And just quickly reminding ourselves of what Netflix does. I mean, I don't know if we, if anybody needs to be reminded, but we have a subscription model, right? You pay per month, you get all content and you cancel whenever you want. It's as simple as that. So the options, are very simply try to get new customers or raise the price for your subscription so you have higher value of customers. And when you look at it this way, it actually, all of these options look really, really bad, right? Because with the current situation, it's very unlikely that you can add new customers at a reasonable cost of acquisition. And a higher price, on the other hand, would likely result in even more people leaving because, as we said, one reason is inflation and also putting spending under scrutiny. Now, if your option is even more expensive, you will even be under more scrutiny. So now the interesting thing here is that you can always dig deeper, right? You don't have to stay on this level. And Netflix has actually found a lever that is going into this direction, but is not on this high level because there is 
something in the in how Netflix works that is now creating a problem for them. So Netflix has always made it easy for people to share an account within one household. And with this feature, it was as easy to just share your password with anyone else you uh, you trust, right? And this is a huge number. Netflix says that there are 100 million households or accounts that are shared outside of a home. Now, when we remember, when we remember that Netflix has 220,000 subscribers, this is almost half of these people who have, of these uh, subscribers who have other people in their account who would actually also have to pay as of the rules of Netflix. Um, so I, I wasn't aware of this. So the rule is that you can share within the household, but not with somebody outside your household. And I guess the way they're measuring this is through the IPs that people use. Address, exactly. So if you're mm. through the same address, then you count as one household. If you're not, then right. you're on two addresses. And honestly, it was always in the rules, but Netflix even used this as marketing as long as it wasn't a problem, right? Netflix <laughs> once tweeted, love is sharing a password. Yeah. So it wasn't like love is sharing a password, but only within your household. It was yeah. more like, hey, we love you all. And yeah. if you have an account, then just share it on. And that was a measure for them to like be loved, to have good publicity. But this was also basically, let's say, the ace that they have that they can now use and basically have to use because what they are doing is they're cutting down on this. So Netflix has presented a plan on how to tackle the situation. And instead of just freezing all these accounts and hoping for people to come back with their separate accounts, they plan to automatically charge the primary account for a fee for every sub-account. So okay. that's so. a technological and also a very much design-driven um, solution here, right? So what you're doing is you're having your accounts and now what you want to find out is how many of these accounts have other sub-accounts that are from another address and now you're trying to as smoothly as possible without <laughs> without losing... Uh, so with trying to lose as few accounts as possible make them pay what they say their fair share for sub-accounts. And these sub-accounts will also be cheaper than a full account. Oof, that sounds like a very business-minded decision that will have a negative consequence. I just hope they're really thinking this through because just me hearing this makes me want to cancel the whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah. There's just something off with like the way it's been communicated until now and now having all these additional, um, you, you as a user have to think of much more about, oh, is, I don't know, my wife who is now currently in another city using this account, do I also have to pay for this? Mm. Uh, even though we are the same household, like, you know, maybe you are a business traveler, you use different hotels, so you use a lot of different IPs. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of hassle. I think this is definitely the thoughts that they are having. Um, and that's, I mean, this is where a design come, comes in, right? We as designers yes. come in. So really um, looking at users, looking at the use cases that are there, 
um, talking to them. And I think there is even, if you do this in a smart way, I think there is a way for people to understand this. Um, but if you don't account for all these cases in terms of traveling, somebody living away for a few weeks, then it's ought to fail. Um, but the interesting or the nice thing is that this is already tested. So they are not taking an approach in terms of let's just do it, but they're really taking a approach that is seemingly thought through and they are testing the system in Peru, Costa Rica and Chile for already <laughs> for an additional price of something around $2.20 to $2.99 for a sub account. And they're trying to learn from this. And then I think we're all going to see this within a year. Um, and let's see how it actually turns out from a product design perspective, from a communication design perspective, yeah. uh, because this is also interesting. Like, how do you tell people that this is going to happen? Yeah. How are you not going to, yeah. um, how is it not only visible because you're just charged for uh, three years more on your next bill? Uh, but how do you actually have a conversation with people who definitely don't check Netflix emails, right? Yes. I mean, I don't check Netflix emails. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. So sure. that's also an interesting challenge from a um, yeah communication design perspective. Mm. Um, so what I just want to try to say is this is not only a business challenge, this is definitely a design challenge. And um, mm. what we as designers need to be aware of is why is this even happening in the first place? Mm. Um, we need to gain trust of our um, our... <laughs> Um, our investors again we need to somehow add um, new accounts or we need to raise the value that we get from accounts and we need to do this then in a way that is not creating the next shitstorm and not creating the next downturn uh, but doing it in a way that actually also works for, for users because um, such changes can definitely also backfire yeah a good practice is also not to just uh penalize in a way users but also give them additional feature maybe this change itself holds an opportunity for something that's like creates a new experience so i hope they will also think this way not just like how do we charge more but also mm, if we want to do this does this open opportunities for something else that could be even better experience yeah uh, there is actually um, another thing that they are um, that they are exploring, which goes a little bit into this direction of you as a user having another option and having another opportunity. Uh, it's not a full upside, but I think it is an upside. So we just said about how can you increase your. Uh, we just talked about how can you increase your revenue, and we said this is either on the number of user side and this is on the or it is on the value per user side. But when you think about business model design, you can also think about how can I add another revenue stream that maybe does not come from the customer. And the solution here or a potential solution here is quite obvious, right? Netflix is a platform that is basically ad free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is also something that Netflix was always um, standing for. Netflix hated ads. And this was their um their usp for a long time saying hey you pay you get all the content you're not disturbed everything is great um and this is how um we are different from basically other public broadcasters who would be financed by ads in the first place 
or also alternatives TVs. like YouTube. Yeah, exactly. TVs. Yeah. That's what I mean with um, public mm. broadcasters. Mm. So this is also something that Netflix has already announced. This is off the table. So this is on the table again. This has never been on the table, right? But now it's on the table and they're practically thinking about a product with a lower price point. So while they definitely want to keep this non-advertising option at the current premium price, um, they really think about having a cheaper product that includes ads. So this way, Netflix could also capture people that are that whose willingness to pay is lower, but they're willing to accept some scale, some extent of advertising. Hmm. So I'm watching Stranger Things and then minute 20 of the show, the ad comes up for GameStop and then some other <laughs> games. I mean, here ah, comes in the, the product design again or the general design again, right? So if you do this, then how do you do it to <laughs> actually not be YouTube? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if they when you say ads, I, I immediately think about you know, interrupting the show and stopping the flow, maybe it can be done differently. Maybe they can also innovate with yeah. that respect. Definitely. And the interesting thing here is that everybody might say, hey, yeah, this is a pure freemium model, right? Spotify does this, YouTube does this. You have this, con uh, this ad-heavy product that is just for free. Um, and then you have your premium version that is just for you. No ads at all. And this, so you pay instead of the advertisers pay. Uh, but this is really interesting because it's actually not a freemium model, right? They're, they would still have a price point. You would still pay, I don't know, maybe half of the price. And you still pay as a user, but at the same time, you still have ads and you have another person, let's say, contributing or another company contributing to this lower price. And I think this is something that you can only do if you have an established brand, right? If you start out, let's have a startup scenario again. The only way or the only reason why you do a freemium model is that you cannot expect people to charge. Um, you cannot expect people to pay while they're trying out the product. Mm. But in Netflix situation, everybody knows what to expect from Netflix, right? It's not a tryout, meaning that they don't need to give this away for free and have a complete freemium model, but they can also still have a price point. Um, and then have ad revenue contributing. Um, and I find this interesting from like a business model pattern perspective that it's not the pure freemium model, but it's still somewhat in between that um, just shows us that there is a lot of options in business design when you're thinking about um, yeah new products in this situation that Netflix is in. This reminds me of Kindle. I think Kindle has a similar... Um, model where you can either buy them with a Kindle with ads or without ads and then the hardware itself is a different price depending on which of these two options you choose so it's a similar story there yeah yeah <sighs> interesting story I think it shows us how like business challenges can be intertwined with design and that's not usually what we associate with design but all of these are They can be done really poorly or they can be designed to be, I'm not going to say beautiful, but at least like 
taking. I mean, they're the, all hard decisions, right? Yes, very it's hard. It's nothing where users say, yes, I've waited for this for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like, okay, how can we make this? How can we design this in a way that it's least harmful? And maybe even part of the experience being a nice one. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. And I think we will see a lot of companies making hard decisions over the next few years. Because if, even if we don't go into crisis, we will probably go into recession. And if that happens, many companies will take similar decisions. And we, there will be a huge spread between companies that handle it well, in terms of design mm. perspective also, and companies that will only have the business perspective. Yeah. So that's going to be something we can keep an eye on and comment over the next business design gems. Yeah. Mm. Do you got more front? I'm good. That's it. I mean, we could go into cost as well, but I think we're already very deep uh, down the rabbit hole. So if you're more interested in Netflix costs and what they can do on this side, then you just reach out to us. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we can cover it in the next business design jam with some cool. more hot topics from the business world. Cool. Thanks everyone for taking the time. Um, as always in the end I'd like to invite you that if you enjoy this show you can also sign up for the 7 day mini MBA where we go into some business concepts that are relevant for designers that you may find also relevant for your work so to sign up you can go to d.mba slash mini minus MBA so d.mba slash mini minus MBA thanks Franz thanks everyone and see you very soon bye bye thank you See you soon.